The scripture for today's sermon comes from Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 30. The word of God speaks to us. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came down and fell at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. This is God's word to us. Thank you, Emily. Good evening, everybody. Um, it's good to be with you. If I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you, uh, my name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here at Frontline Church, and so we are going to continue working our way through the book of Mark. We're coming up on kind of like a halfway point here pretty soon, um, and so I hope you are getting as much out of it as I am, and right now I want to do what we, we always do in this moment. I want to take a moment to pray for you. I would ask you to, to really pray for me, and then we're just going to go through this verse by verse. So let's pray with and for one another. So, Father, I thank you for tonight. I thank you for friends in this room, um, whether we've known each other for a long time or, or maybe this is their first time with us tonight. We know that you and your, your providence and your sovereignty have led each and every one of us here in this moment. And I pray that you would help us, Spirit of God, be really present. There's probably so many things that are waiting for us tomorrow and, and just cares that are going to pull on our heart. And I pray that you would help us just be really rooted in this moment with soft hearts, open to you, open ears. And I pray for uh, for my own heart, my own words, that I would just be able to help my friends and point my own heart and and each of their hearts to you in this moment, the the beauty of the gospel. We pray all this, Jesus, in your name. God's people said, Amen. amen. So to begin, I want to invite you to imagine you're outside and you're in front of a door. And it you have deep need, real desperation. It's a reality for you. You're carrying some, some heavy things. And on the other side of that door, you know for a fact, God is there. The door's unlocked. And it's ready for you to walk through. The question for us tonight as we begin is, how do you approach him through that door? And... What do you expect him to be like? Do you imagine he's going to be distant, uninterested, maybe even volatile? Are you uncertain and a little nervous about the mood you're going to find God in? Do you expect God to to be like your favorite grandparent who's just waiting for you to come and ready to dole out some some gifts and, and spoil you and give you everything that you might want? And most importantly, how are you going to approach him? I think what's beautiful about this story is it's a story that reveals the heart of God, and it's a story that gives us wisdom as to how to approach God. It's a story about faith, ultimately, and it's a story about the type of faith that actually lights up the heart of God. It's a story about faith that brings joy to Jesus, And so if you're here this evening and you're just exploring Christianity, 
this is a really helpful story. And if you're here tonight and you've maybe been a Christian for a long time, and particularly if you find yourself in, in a difficult place, a hard place, I think this as well is a really helpful story. And so we're just going to take five points and we're going to work our way verse by verse. We'll take one or two at a time and just work our way through this to see the beauty that I believe is, is here for us to see. So first thing I want us to see is drained Jesus, a drained Jesus and disciples. Look at verse 24 to see what we're talking about. This is, again, how the story begins. And from there, he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. So what we see first is Jesus and, and his disciples, these 12 men that he's handpicked for, for ministry with him. They've traveled to this region called Tyre and Siren, which is in modern-day Lebanon. It was about 20 miles northwest of where Jesus spent most of his time doing ministry. And this is probably, according to a lot of scholars, the only moment in the ministry of Jesus that he goes outside of the ancient borders of Israel. Right? And so Jen Wilkin, who's like one of the most amazing Bible uh, teachers, she speaks about this moment and kind of gives us some insight as to not just geographically, but culturally where Jesus finds himself with the disciples, speaking of this place, Tyre and Sidon. She says this, a short way to understand this place is to say that Jesus went to pagan town. Like, this is Depravityville that Jesus is on the skirts of. This is like the 2,000-year-old version of Vegas, right? And so Jesus and his disciples have gone to a place that, that we are just frankly surprised that they've gone. So what brings Jesus here to this region of Tyre and Sidon? Well, he hasn't come to preach. He's come actually to pause. He hasn't come to just live out a healing ministry. He's actually come for holiday. He hasn't come to live out missions. He's come with the intention of getting a moment of rest. See, Jesus and his disciples are really tired. That's where they find themselves at the beginning of this story. And if you've been with us week in and week out, we can remember what's led to this point. If not, let me just remind us all or catch us up. See, in the moments leading up to this story in Mark, it's been particularly intense for Jesus. His, his family member, his friend, his forerunner, John the Baptist, this man whose job was to prophetically prepare a way for Jesus, he, he's been murdered by King Herod. And now Jesus is on King Herod's radar. And ever since the murder of John the Baptist, Jesus has been actively seeking a place to find rest, a place to, to grieve, a place to slow down, a place to connect with his heavenly father, a place to pour into his disciples. And everywhere they go, they're taking boats across the Sea of Galilee. They're, they're going off into the wilderness by themselves. Yet everywhere they go, people are seeing and running ahead and searching them out and finding them. And so they are constantly surrounded with overwhelming crowds, with intense needs that are constantly seeking Jesus. And add that into the mix that, that Pharisees, these religious elite, 
these self-righteous critics are constantly watching Jesus, criticizing him. They're attacking him and testing him continually. So all this has converged and all this weight is on Jesus and the disciples and they're worn out and they're weary and they need rest. And so they go to Tyre and Sidon, probably thinking that Jesus will have a really low profile there. No one's going to be busting down the door to, to speak to Jesus, to hear Jesus entire inside. But even though it seems like the text tells us that Jesus didn't even enter into a district or a town, he's just in a region, he's on the fringes, he, get it, he doesn't escape notice. Jesus is, is fully God, and yet he's fully man. And we see in this moment that he is tired and just wants to rest for a little while. Reading this this week, I was reminded of a moment in a book that I read to my kids last year. It's one of the books in the series of the Chronicles of Narnia. It's a book called A Horse and His Boy. I know it's a favorite of Emily Polk, um, if you know Emily. But A Horse and His Boy, there's this main character. His name Shasta. And there's this moment in the book where he, he actually lives out this amazing heroic moment where he sacrifices himself, he exhausts himself physically, shows extraordinary bravery, and actually saves his, his friends from an attack. And immediately upon this act of bravery and, and just really just extending himself fully in every way to save some others, right upon the completion of this mission, he's charged again to go do something that's another rescue mission. And the book reads this way, and I believe it gives us a little insight as to how Jesus and the disciples must have felt. This is what the book says, just describing Shasta. It says, his heart fainted at these words, for he felt he had no strength left. And he writhed inside at what seemed the cruelty and the unfairness of the demand. He had not yet learned that if you do one good deed, your reward usually is to be set to do another and harder and better one. I imagine that's how the disciples and even Jesus felt when they found themselves in this region of Tyre and Sidon. Upon reading this, I just started to think and reflect and... Um, I think personally for me, and it's not a stretch to say for so many of us, especially in light of the last 20 months, when we slow down a little bit and we're with a friend or someone we know who really cares about us and they look us in the eye and they ask, how are you doing? We used to just knee jerk say, I'm, I'm good, I'm fine, I'm okay. It seems so common now that we say, I'm tired. Many of us are tired. Some of you here tonight are small business owners and you're working so hard and you maybe have employees and you're, you're fighting to keep them employed and you are, you are tired. Some of you tonight are, are new parents and you used to talk about being tired, and we who were parents used to internally roll our eyes at you for thinking you knew what tired was. And now you know tired, right? Welcome to tired. You are, you are there. You have arrived. 
Some of you are single parents. And you uniquely, we, so many of us don't know the, the depths of the tiredness you feel at times and how much you carry. But see, right off the bat, one of the beautiful things we need to see is something extraordinary in this story. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, second person of the Trinity, he knows what it's like to be tired. He knows the weight of weariness. He, he knows God knows what it feels like to be worn out. So when we come to Jesus in prayer and we, we share our heart and we say, Lord, I'm tired. His response to that isn't like confusion or indifference or a detachment. He gets it. He knows how we feel. This is the wonder and the mystery of the incarnation, the fact that God became flesh and he walked among us. It's what we celebrate at Christmas. The the son of God has, has become a man and he knows what it's like to walk in our shoes. And his invitation to us in our weariness is beautiful. He says it in Matthew chapter 11, come to me all of you who are weary and heavy and carry heavy burdens. And his promise is this, I will give you rest. But for Jesus here, Mark tells us that there is no rest for him in this moment. He entered a house and he didn't want anybody, he didn't want anybody to know, yet he could not be hidden. Jesus could not be hidden. Now, that has some, like, really literal application here, right? This woman finds him. And yet, in a beautiful way, it has, like, an epic application. That that is always true. Jesus is the light of the world. He can never be hidden. As we're seeking to support and plant a church in Mumbai, India, and that looks so dark at times, but the good news is Jesus can never be hidden. In our lives right now, Regardless of what we're going through personally, and it feels like he's distant or far, no, the good news is this, it's true. He's the light of the world. He can never be hidden. And so we see that Jesus is found by, and this is bringing us to our second point, he's found by a desperate mother, a desperate mother. Look at verse 25. But immediately Jesus, whose little daughter, but immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now, the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. So just imagine the scene, right? Jesus and his, his, his boys have just checked into the Airbnb. They just unpacked their bags. They're settling. And then, like, boom, the door flies open, and this desperate mom comes in. And she's described to us as a, a Phoenician. And so she was, a, this was a part of Syria. It was a providence of Syria at the time, which, like many places on earth 2,000 years ago, was under Roman rule. And she is culturally Greek. So 300 years before this, her people had been conquered by Alexander the Great. They'd been Hellenized. So culturally, she's Greek, Greek by culture. That's the language she speaks. Matthew, as he tells this story from his perspective in his gospel, he adds the detail that she's a Canaanite by heritage. 
And, and th- that means that she comes from a people that were the, one of the arch, arch enemies of God's people. So w- what's the point being made here? The point is this. She is really super duper not Jewish, right? This is what's being just communicated to us in the Gospels. And there's so many hurdles between she and Jesus on paper. She's a woman. He's a man. In both their cultures, that created distance between them. She's a Gentile. He's a Jew. Any other rabbi would just clutch his robes and run away from this woman. Yet, we can see what Jesus does. And we see what she does. What crosses this divide? What brings her to Jesus? It's her desperation, the desperation of a mother. She needs help. Her daughter is possessed by a demon. She is experiencing a living hell. Had to have been so hard, so scary. There's things that are explicit that we know in this text that are horrible. There's things that are implicit in this text that are interesting and also hard. Where's dad? Has the heartache of dealing with the daughter caused him to to ditch the family? Has he died? Did he divorce her? We don't know, but we know she's here alone with Jesus and her situation is heartbreaking. And I think the danger for us as we read all scripture, but especially here in Mark and we're about halfway through, is that as we read these stories, we might cognitively recognize, hey, this is history, this is true, And yet, we can become kind of inoculated or callous to the reality of these stories. Let's just slow down for a minute and remember and remind our hearts that this is a real mom who has a, a real precious little girl who is really oppressed by real darkness. And we can seek to actively empathize with her. You know, as I was reading this story earlier this week, it just like, one of the things that kind of surprised me that struck my heart that I want to share with you is I just became deeply angry, which I think is really appropriate. Like, I've come to this point a few times already today, and it's a challenge because I cannot share with you how I feel in an appropriate way. I don't have the maturity or language to articulate it. We would have to like edit it out of the podcast. Um, I just, it's so upsetting. Like the cowardice and the, the wickedness and the trash that the powers of darkness are to pick on a little girl, like to hell with them, right? And so think about how you would feel if this is your daughter. Where would you go? In her wisdom, this woman goes to the right place. She comes and she falls at the feet of Jesus. And there's several things that are going on here, right? At the feet of Jesus, this is a place that's a a place of honor, a place of deep respect, even a place of worship. 
It's also, though, a place of pleading, and it's a place of desperation. Again, Matthew's gospel, we get his lens and his perspective of the story, and he gives this mom some words that Mark doesn't. He gives us some details as to how she's pleading, and this is what she's saying. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by demons. And this word begged in Matthew, it's a, it's a, a present progressive. It doesn't mean that she just stated this once and waited. She's saying it again and again and again. She's pleading and begging and continually and intensely again and again, just sharing her heart and, and beseeching in desperation and, and asking Jesus in anguish, would you move? I need you to do something. I need your deliverance. You're my only hope, and she will not be silenced. Matthew also gives us a, a little bit more detail, and he says that Jesus' disciples begin to beg too. And of course, we hope that they would beg Jesus for the same thing. Um, but as they always are, John Mark, remember, is is the perspective, the primary source of this gospel is, is the apostle Peter himself, and he's always so honest about how they miss it again and again. And the disciples aren't begging Jesus to heal this woman, they're begging him to send her away. And Jesus, Matthew tells us, is just being quiet, he's silent. So just imagine the picture. This woman is beseeching him. The disciples are begging him for two very different things, and Jesus is being quiet. It's not a stone-cold silence. My heart's reminded of what we saw a couple weeks ago. Remember when the storm came in and Jesus was asleep? His disciples woke him up. Don't you care that we're perishing? Well, that was an ironic question. Like They didn't know the depths and the extent that he cared that they were perishing. And we see something similar here in his silence. It's not a cold-hearted silence. I believe it's a, a quiet, calm, and compassion. I'm sure Jesus was listening to the Father. I'm sure Jesus was listening to this woman. He's thinking, how can I help her? How can I help these men? And we're going to see that he's going to do both. And all the while, she's persistently intensely with hope and faith pleading for Jesus to move. She's desperate. It reminds me of this moment. It feels like 10 years ago, but it was just a couple years ago. We were studying um, the life of King David, warrior poet, series in 2019. And I was reminded of something that happened in the life of King David. He had been anointed king, yet he was out in the desert. And this is what happens in his life. This is 1 Samuel chapter 22. It says, and everyone who is in distress, and everyone who is in debt, and everyone who is bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became captain over them. See, David attracted people that were desperate for change, that longed for something better, that had a bitterness in soul, desperate people. People that were comfortable, people that had, you know, a ton to lose, people that had no need of him, weren't drawn to him. It was people that were desperate, distressed, debtors 
they rallied to him. And what they found was that under his kingship, in their desperation, they found a king. They found a kingdom. They found a seat at the table. They, they thrived. They lived. They had peace. I think it's easy for me, and I think it's easy for each and every one of us, to come tonight, or maybe to come to your community group, to gather with brothers and sisters in Christ, and do so out of habit, do so out of obligation, do so out of tradition. And what we see in this amazing woman that challenges my heart, and and I hope challenges each and every one of us, is that I hope as we gather together to pursue God, to approach him, that each and every one of us are holding on to some desperation. That when we come together, we're coming, and and, and in some place in our life, deep down, we're really aware of the truth that, Jesus, we need you to move, and without you, we're doomed. I need your mercy, Jesus. You're my only hope. I need your wisdom, Jesus. You're my only hope. As we seek to raise our children up into who they're called to be in Christ Jesus, we come with a sense of desperation. I can't do this on my own, Lord. Help me. As we're fighting for relationships and friendships and and marriage, as we're seeking to, to live out our calling and vocation out in the world in a way where God is glorified, God, help us not to come and say, I've got this handled, I can do it on my own. May we come with desperation and say, without you, we're toasts, God. Please move in our life. We need you. It's one of the beautiful lessons that she has for us today. That's what brought This woman to Jesus, it's what should bring us to him as well. So what happens next? The third thing we need to see is a drawing, a line and a drawing out of treasure. Let's look at verse 27. And he, Jesus, said to her, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. That's not what we would expect we were writing the story and making it up, this is not what we would have Jesus say if it was our story that we were making up, I suppose. Especially as people that live in Logan County or, or Edmond in 2021 and people that, for the majority of us, don't know Greek or Hebrew, we speak English. This response from Jesus, it seems harsh and ins- insensitive. I mean, it seems, upon first reading, to be rude at best and, and perhaps even like racist and sexist at worst. We might hear this response and think like, what have you done, John Mark, with my Jesus? Like, who is this person? Surely that's what Peter said. That's not what Jesus said, right? Like, there's, there's some mix-up, right? But no, this is the real Jesus, and what he's doing is good. It's always good. So what's, what's going on here? Well, first I want to talk about what's not going on here, right? Many people have claimed that this text is evidence that Jesus was not sinless. That this is perhaps exhibit A, that, that Jesus sinned. In fact, this year, I believe in 2021, it made national news. There's a theologically liberal, progressive uh, TikTok pastor. Um, he, I, I don't know, how, how much time do you get on TikTok? 
Anybody know? No one wants to admit to having a TikTok. It's not a lot of time. So I don't know how you convey much in like the 20 seconds you have. Regardless, uh, there was this uh, uh, Bible teacher on TikTok, and he pointed to this as an example, and it went viral. It was all over the news. I saw it in many different outlets. And, and his point was this is a beautiful example of this woman speaking truth to power, and she's calling Jesus out of his, on his racism, and he repents and responds to, to her calling him out. This is a good time to remind all of us, but first and foremost me, in this moment, what James writes to the church in James chapter 3, his letter. He says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. (laughs) For you know, this is the scary part for me, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. All right? So let, let me be clear. Jesus, help me be clear. It's impossible, y'all. It's impossible to be a Christian. More than that, it's impossible to have a Christianity if Jesus ever sinned. The good news of Christianity, the faith it hinges upon, it is built upon a sinless, perfect Jesus. And if Jesus, in this story, or ever, did anything wrong and committed a sin, there was no way he could take care of our sin. If he ever committed a single sin, the cross of Christ accomplished nothing. There's no atonement. There's no grace. There's no gift righteousness. We need to feel the weight of what's at stake here. This is everything. If Jesus sinned, he is no savior. But scripture is clear. You read it for yourself. You read the gospels. You read the New Testament and see the beauty of of the explanation of the ministry of Christ and the glory of the church. It is crystal clear that Jesus never sinned. Look at what the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, speaking about what Jesus accomplished, what God accomplished at the cross. Paul writes, for our sake... He, the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 4 writes this. We, speaking of Jesus, we have a high priest and he was tempted in every way at every point like we are, yet without sin. The entire book of Hebrews is about the truth and the fact that Jesus is sinless, thank God. Jesus Christ never sinned. If you're a Christian, we have bet our life on that fact. And we can stake our life on that fact because it's true. So what's happening here? Well, Commentators say possibly one of two things. I believe it's actually both of those things. So as quick as I can, I want to kind of explain what's going on. Because this is like the heart of the confusion of this text. And so let's, let's see if we can understand. Because as we can, there's real beauty in it. See, the first thing that I think Jesus is communicating and teaching is a really profound truth about his earthly ministry. 
He says, let the children be fed first. It's not right to take the bread from the kids and give it to the dogs. Again, Matthew, with his, his lens of the story, his, his perspective, his version of the story, which is it's so helpful getting different gospel accounts because it's like a, just a different camera angle explaining what's happening. And he gives us some additional words that Jesus says that I think are helpful to understand. Matthew says that Jesus also says, following that statement, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. He says this to this woman. So she's coming, she's busted into the Airbnb, right? And she's begging, she's saying, hey, is there bread for me? And Jesus' answer to her is, hey, it's not right to take the kid's bread and throw it to the dogs at dinner time." And when Jesus is talking about these kids, these children, he's referring to the nation, the people of Israel. There are many places in the Old Testament that give us some foundational understanding. Exodus 4 would be one where the nation of Israel is described like a firstborn child to God. And Jesus is saying, hey, my ministry has an order It has a priority, it has a focus, and that first priority is the nation, the people of Israel, who God in his grace has chosen and led and promised faithfulness, not because they're so great, but because God's so great. And Jesus is saying, this people, this nation, is my focus first. Jesus is stating that the time has not yet come for the ministry of the kingdom of God to extend past this people. See, Jesus' ministry was like shockingly local. He never went to Rome, the most powerful, important city of his day. He was limited to something like 7,000 square miles. It's like Connecticut. It's like the 47th smallest state. Like he did not go that far over the course of three years. He was hyper-focused on a specific people. So Israel has this distinct, unique first claim on the earthly ministry of Jesus. But notice something here that might be easy to skip over. There's a really important word that Jesus uses, and that word is first. Let the children be fed, not period, but first. Jesus isn't saying, no, never for you Gentiles. He's saying, not yet. God's mission to the Gentiles, everyone who's not Jewish, the mass majority of us in this room, is coming. And the good news is, the best is yet to come in this moment in this story. The cross is yet to come. The resurrection is yet to come. Pentecost, where God sends the spirit in power, is yet to come. Paul begins to describe the gospel and the kingdom of God in Romans 1. And he explicitly says it came to the Jews first and then to the Greeks. Remember just the sweetness that Jesus said, the risen Jesus before he ascended to heaven and took his seat at the throne, the great commission he gives at the end of Matthew, Matthew 28. Listen carefully in light of this story. All authority in heaven, Jesus said, and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. 
Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So Jesus' earthly ministry in this moment is to the Jews, but outreach to the world that God loves is coming. It's God's heart. It's God's plan, and it's going to be carried out through Jesus' apostles empowered by the Holy Spirit. And we see that in the book of Acts. It's beautiful. So this is important. It's true. This is like this kind of high-level explanation of the earthly ministry of Jesus. But I think if we put ourselves in this woman's shoes, she probably didn't care that much about a high-level explanation of, of the ministry of Jesus in this moment, right? But I do think what Jesus is saying also has important and practical application to what's happening here on the ground, in this house, in this story. See, here's the second thing I think Jesus is communicating to her. Because remember the context. Jesus is tired. His disciples are tired. And she has entered in, almost invaded and interrupted that rest. And very simply, Jesus is saying, hey, I'm trying, these 12 men that are with me, they're like my kids and this is like family dinner, and they are starving, and I'm trying to feed them, and it would be a bad move right now, inappropriate right now, for me to take my focus off them and give it to you. And he explains that through telling the story about a family at dinner and a dog. Now, see, some Jews, particularly like the religious elite, these self-righteous Pharisees, they would use a term to describe non-Jews, Gentiles, in the ancient world. And the term would be dog, and the Greek word for that term is kuon. And that literally translates to a, a wild cur, right? So I don't know if you guys have ever seen the movie Tombstone. It's a solid film. Um, but Kurt Russell in that movie... There's this moment where he's yelling at these bad guys, and he says, run, you curs, and tell those other curs the law's coming. And I remember being an 18-year-old being like, what is a cur? Like, what, what does that mean? And like, not knowing for a long time. But it, it means a wild dog. It means a worthless dog. It means a street dog. It means a, a dirty, mongrel dog. And so this was, this, this term, curon, it, it was a, a term of of just contempt. And so some self-righteous religious leaders would use that term to describe people who weren't Jews to say, hey, you're unspiritual, unworthy, unclean, and your very presence is unacceptable. And what you see again and again is Jesus actually just shocks people and he turns expectations upside down. And so the word that Jesus says here is a different word. He's not saying kuon or kuron. He's, he's not using that, that term wild cur or worthless dog. He's, he's, he's taking his focus and ministry. He's saying to take it away from the lost sheep of Israel would be like a father taking bread from the table at family dinner and giving it to, and the word that Jesus uses is a kunarion, a different word. It's got a different meaning, and the translation would not be like a wild, worthless, crazy street dog, mongrel. The translation would, could be puppy or, or like a lap dog, right? 
So it's a different word, it's a different meaning, and Jesus is making a different point, and all theologians agree that, hey, he isn't like, he's saying something that that is, is confrontational. He is saying something that's hard, and yet he's declining this woman's request to test her, saying, hey, you have no legitimate expectation for my help. He's not insulting her, he's instructing her, and as Jesus so often does, he's doing it by way of metaphor, by way of parable. And she understands that if a table is set for a family and the kids are, kids are hungry, it would be weird, it would be inappropriate to take the kid's food and give it to the puppy first. And the disciples in this moment, they need bread. And if you're familiar with the ministry of Jesus up to this point, what you would know is that Jesus has been continually and constantly bombarded with people that are seeking healing, but they, they so often have no interest in him. They just have an interest in getting something from him and then moving on and forgetting about him. We've seen that again and again. And Jesus never healed just for the sake of healing His healing revealed who he is, and it was in response to faith and to build faith. And faith is ultimately what this story is about. And it's in a unique way and in a powerful, glorious way that's an example to the disciples, an example to us. It's what this amazing woman possesses. Let's look together at her response to Jesus, the fourth thing. Deep faith displayed. Verse 28, but she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. It doesn't appear that she takes offense to what Jesus says, but what's beautiful that what she does that so many people don't do, Jesus again and again, right, through through Mark, he's He's had this invitation and this challenge. He who has ears, let him hear. And she has ears to hear. She understands. She she is so listening to Jesus. She enters into the story, the parable, the metaphor that he is, is sharing. And then out of the words of Jesus, she speaks with wisdom and faith. Yes, Lord, but even puppies get to eat under the table the crumbs of the children. She's saying to Jesus in a way, yes, Jesus, I agree with you that I have no claim and I have no right for you to move in my life. I've earned nothing. I deserve nothing. Yes, Jesus, I understand and I don't disagree that I have no claim or right to sit at this table. Nothing that I have done in and of myself gives me a right to sit at this table and dine with you and the children. But she says, Jesus, this I know, that just crumbs from you is more than enough for what I need. Jesus, just a little morsel of you is more than enough to satisfy my deepest desire. Pastor Tim Keller in his book, Jesus the King, he explains what's happening here in a beautiful way. He writes this. In Western cultures, we don't have anything like this kind of assertiveness. We only have the assertion of our rights We do not know how to contend unless we're standing up for our rights, standing on our dignity, our goodness, and saying, this is what I'm owed. But this woman is not doing that at all. This is rightless 
assertiveness, something we know little about. She's not saying, Lord, give me what I deserve on the basis of my goodness. She's saying, give me what I don't deserve on the basis of your goodness. I need it now. (laughs) I love that so much. Remember where we began. Imagine you're outside. You're alone. You're carrying a heavy burden. You've got real needs. And you're in front of a door. On the other side of that door is God. The door is unlocked. How do you approach him? This mom gives us the answer. We come desperate for mercy and help and grace from Jesus. We come humbly, not standing on our own righteousness, but falling on the righteousness of Jesus. And we come confident and boldly knowing who is there, knowing the character of God and his heart and that he is a God who loves mercy and who welcomes the desperate and the weary and who does all things well. And once again, Mark shows us just how good Jesus is. Look at our final point, point five. We see a delighted Jesus and a delivered daughter. Verse 29, and he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Again, Matthew, in his account of the story, he he records Jesus saying, Oh, woman, how great is your faith. And then Jesus proclaims, What an answer. (laughs) Like she lights up the heart of Jesus. She's soft-hearted, she's spiritually poor, she's humble, she's lowly. And just recall that last week we were just um, able to see this encounter, this exchange with these self-righteous Pharisees and Jesus, and they were just so confident in their own righteousness, and they would have been so repelled by this woman. They would have despised her and just because they would have thought they were so much greater than she is. And the gospel just pulls back the curtain and we see that's a sham, that she is so much greater than they are. In fact, she's one of the greatest examples of faith in all scripture. And Jesus is drawing this faith out, holding it up for, I think, real practically and powerfully for his disciples to see. He's trying to, to draw what's out of her for, for, for them to see, so they just, just plant it in their own hearts. And for us as well, to celebrate, to take hold of. He was so filled with faith, and Jesus loves it. And he grants her request, and, and this is so beautiful too. What does Jesus do? He charges her to continue to walk in that faith. How hard would that be to come and ask Jesus to to heal your daughter? And I'm sure the expectation is that he's going to come back to your home. And yet Jesus just says, hey, go home. Your daughter's been healed. And so who knows how long she's traveled, but she's got to make that pilgrimage back home. 
in this woman of faith, we have confidence that she believed and had hope. And when she, she comes home, she finds what we know to be true, that what Jesus says is always true. And her daughter is delivered. She's well. There's a theologian named Jimmy Egan. And he wrote an article called The Shocking Words of Christ. And he speaks about this story. And um, I'll end with a quote from him because I think he sums up this story up so well. He says this, At first glance, we're startled by Jesus' lack of sensitivity. After deeper reflection, the text confronts us with our lack of sensitivity. Our lack of sensitivity to the strength of a desperate mother's persevering faith to the demands of discipleship and to the depths of the mercy that make Jesus ready to bless anyone who comes to him in true faith. This story reminds us that Jesus came to identify with us fully. And there's no place that that is more clear than on the cross And this story just gives us a hint as to what's to come. That on that cross that Jesus was treated without mercy, without a crumb of mercy, like a dog. He left his seat at the table as the son of God. He left the glory of heaven and experienced shame and pain and rejection And he did it freely. He did it with his eyes wide open. He did it by choice. Nobody took his life. He laid it down freely. And he did all of that so that we who are dogs, we who are mongrels, we who have no righteousness in and of ourselves, he was treated that way so that we could be transformed into sons and daughters and adopted and have a seat at the table so we can experience the richness of the bread of life. See, this little girl was delivered of her oppression. It's a beautiful story. And so many people throughout the Gospel of Mark are healed of their afflictions. These are beautiful stories, but they just point to a a better news, a higher good news, that each and every person that's delivered from the oppression of darkness, it's, it's just a glimpse as to what Jesus is, is accomplishing, that, that in him and, and by his sacrifice on the cross, that the powers of darkness were fully defeated. And that in him, we have faith, and the truth is that, that death has lost its sting. And that even if we might pray in the moment for a, a child to, to be healed of sickness, and yet Jesus doesn't answer that prayer immediately in Christ. It's answered fully because death isn't the end. It's just a transition to be with our Savior forever. This is the power and the good news of the cross. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have eternal life. That's what we celebrate today. It's better than even the deliverance of a daughter. Jesus lived for us. He died for us. He rose that so in him we can rise to.
Let's stand and pray.